Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It is episode number 145. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers. Mysteries. Crime. And suspense. Yes, correct. Welcome to the show. And our guest this week is, well, it's a, it's a weird one, this one, because he's one of my old colleagues. Yes, I know. Yes, he, he popped up and asked if he could come on the podcast book show and said he kn- he knew Hobes, and I knew that was you. <laughs> <laughs> that was my working name, mostly. Hobie or Hobes. Yes, uh, we're talking about Sanjeev Shetty, or Sanj for short. And Sanj and I worked together in BBC Sports News Television for quite a few years. Fact, far too many to remember, really. All the way back to our days in Television Centre in London, and then, in, latterly, in Salford, where I was, you know, for want of a better word, his boss. Oh, really? I didn't. I didn't actually realise that. Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was, I, I was sort of deputy head of the department that he worked for. Yes. Okay. So, um, anyway, Sanj is one of those pioneers who was one of the first people to sort of jump on the uh, opportunity to publish your own books, and that's quite a long time ago now—thirteen yeah. years. So. He's Is written, it as long as that? Thirty yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So he's written. Well, I think it first came out in 2012, but certainly the book was written in 2010. So um, he's written fiction and non-fiction, and the non-fiction side is really around his love of sport, uh, mutual love of sport, I suppose. And uh, the fiction, well, he's picked it up again recently uh, with the same character he wrote all those years ago, and uh, put it in a sporting context. So it'd be interesting. I mean, you know, you'll get a, you'll learn a lot about. Um, what life is like at the BBC and it was some of our mutual experiences, but uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's great to to catch up with Sanj. Especially someone who was was one of the sort of early adopters. Of, mm. And what what clicked for me to work that out was when he said he paid to upload the book on KDP, and I That's thought, right. gosh, you really had to pay at some point. <laughs> yes, I mean that, that that was before KDP was a thing, but, yeah. but Amazon self publishing was was available, and yeah, you had to pay. For the privilege of getting your manuscript, you know, in a, in a position where it could be printed. Yeah, so I think there'd be an outrage if that was the case now, wouldn't there? <laughs> there would, there would, but don't <laughs> don't rule it out happening again. Um, that's the sort of thing they might do. Right. Well, that's um, that's terrific. So let's get into um, the news. And there's one story that's dominating in the UK at the moment in in publishing terms. I think overall, which is this accusation of plagiarism facing. Rachel Reeves, who is the shadow uh, chancellor yes. for Labour, and uh, therefore, should Labour get into government next year, would be the Chancellor of the Exchequer, assuming that that would be the case. Yeah, so, in yeah. charge of all the money. 
And um, <laughs> this is a book that she has just published, uh, which celebrates the lives of 20 famous e- econo- uh, women economists. Which which sounds like a fascinating read to me. I've got half a degree in economics. So, yeah, I'm, I can imagine it being on my Christmas list. However, <laughs> it has quite it quickly been exposed that um, and she's admitted to this. So let's not say it's an accusation. It is is a fact that some of the passages in the book are lifted from other sources without citation uh and um you know with and basically they've, they've got through the process and have just been lifted yeah so there's two sides to this there's the uh lifting of phrases almost word for word they're not exactly word for word but they're very very close so you can tell that somebody's gone in and thought oh i need to change the old word to make it not plagiarism not realizing that it needs to be more than that and there's a lack of citation that's another issue now um, this this plays into your field of expertise because a lot of your freelance work is around the non-fiction side of things and indeed dealing with these sort of um, these issues isn't yeah it? so i mean i was i've read this article in the, it was in the guardian the one i read and i was thinking um part of my job is to check that um any facts are referenced properly. And so that definitely should have been spotted. If there was no, you know, you can put um, 50% of blah, blah, blah in 2019, but you would have to then have a footnote or um, a reference to where you got that fact from. You couldn't just say it. And it looks like that that was missing as well. So the editor should have spotted that or queried that at the very least. Now, plagiarism or almost plagiarism is much more difficult to spot because unless you're looking for that or unless you go to the source that is referenced, if the source is referenced, you wouldn't spot that as an editor. And if the sources aren't referenced, as in this case, you would have nothing to check against. So I can understand why that wasn't spotted, but I think it's poor form on the... Uh, part of the editor not to query the fact any facts that were listed or um you know not not to have queried the lack of citation yeah okay so let's let's just look into the detail of this basic books which is an imprint of publishing giant hachette has admitted factual sentences taken from primary sources should have been rewritten and properly referenced but this did not happen in every case Reeves' office on Wednesday issued a statement denying plagiarism, but the Shadow Chancellor touched obliquely on the allegations at a book launch at the Institute for Government later that evening. Reeves, at that talk, uh, said it had an extensive bibliography, but not everything got in there. Mm. I hold my hands up. It's my book, my name on the cover, and there were things in the book that should have been properly, properly referenced asked whether two other books she had authored contained inadvertent mistakes. The Shadow Chancellor said, I've not had time to go through those books. Writing this book while also doing this job was a challenge. Now, it makes you wonder how this was assembled. Did she have people working on it alongside her to try and and pull together? Yes, apparently she did. So she had research assistants help her. So my... my, um assumption here is that the research assistants found information and she went through the information and um added it to the book so between those sort of two stages they the, the text wasn't referenced or changed sufficiently to be for her to have it in her own words i'm guessing um right so there's always a danger in that isn't there because i think you when you're writing an academic book you you do you do need to have somebody 
um, who knows about academic writing to make sure that it's watertight in terms of referencing and what you're saying. So she says, oh, some things weren't in the bibliography. That's not sufficient. You need to say for, every, for all these factual claims you're making, you need to say where you got it from. You can't just say, yeah. oh, you can't just list the books in the back. That's not... <laughs> So I'm, I'm reading the article in the FT. So it's really sort of um, the Financial Times. It has really uh, resonated. And, of course, the Conservative Party have jumped on this. Uh, oh, the chairman, would, yeah. uh, Greg Hand, <laughs> saying this is a serious breach and all this sort of stuff. But, well, it's much worse than having parties during COVID, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But executives at leading publishers admitted that few use the software that is now being adopted by universities to spot plagiarism and artificial artificial intelligence generated content uh, one said that companies instead rely on the honesty of their authors and the skills of their editors in spotting anything that looks unusual or out of keeping with the rest of the author's work well that's um, a good point because yes traditionally that is the case but if there's something available that you can use software that you can use to do that job then yeah maybe they should have used it Mm. They should be using it as um, standard. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder if the efficacy of this software, I mean, how it works and how it spots stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, plagiarism is uh, is rife, I'm sure. But the AI side of it is going to be very, very difficult to spot, surely. Well, I, uh, The Guardian has actually got some of the passages that are similar. So okay, yeah. That's, how about that's, I read? So, yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah. So here's the first one is the passage that uh, it came from originally. Um, it's from an obit- obituary uh, by Jane O'Grady. And it says, Once entering a small restaurant in Boston, she was told that ladies were not admitted in trousers. She simply took them off. And Reeves's book has changed this to once... When entering a smart restaurant in Boston, she was told that ladies were not admitted in trousers. So she she took them off there and then. So there are subtle differences. Well, there, there and then is about the only thing I could spot there. Um, um, da, 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 da. So it's lifted from an obituary. Yes. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. There are other examples, but it's just, you can clearly see there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there must have been obvious for people to spot them so quickly. Um, unless, of course, the you know political forces that are anti uh, the Labour Party went to work and and tried to find those um, things, but I mean, you know, it's pretty obvious if you can find them that quickly. Uh, interesting debate, though, isn't it? And and it, it it points to I think that quite a few people sign book deals in these circumstances where you know it's going to be a team effort because the the principal person whose front name's on the cover, and this is the same with ghostwriting. You know, isn't necessarily going to have a great deal of contact with the actual text. Mm. They're just going to stick their name on it. I'm not saying Rachel Reeves did that completely, but it does strike me that she was time pressed. Yes, uh, and she's admitted that. So it was it was a, a collective team effort. But if your researchers aren't au fait with what really should be the approach you take the, the, with the rigor, mm. then that that's where these things come in. And of course, uh, publishers. Uh, a lot of this is done in good faith. It's signed in contracts that you know the author should assert it's their work and no one else's, and all this sort of thing, unless otherwise, uh, you know, said absolutely re- referenced. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it's fallen down. But you know, it has become a political football. But in with respect to Rachel Reeves, I like the fact she said, "Yep, yeah, busted." 
in a yeah, way. The, because yeah, yeah, yeah. What would the Conservatives do? They wouldn't do that. They would. Well, I mean, we, we were speculating, but I mean, it, it's an individual thing. But none, <laughs> no. But I think I think Rachel Reeves has that um, degree of integrity, and uh, you know, on this occasion, she's put her hands up. But then that's that's also part of the, the the pitch at the moment is that we're not like them. We we say when we've done something wrong, so that's that's consistent with that. But it it, it is embarrassing. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to another story. What have we got? Um, okay, this is one of those stories that you see in the bookseller all the time, and it, it, it it's um, well, it's standard, standard fare, yeah, standard <laughs> publishing news, and and indeed, uh, what we're talking about is another company announcing uh, their results. Yeah, so Bloomsbury, and they have been enormously successful. I mean, they've only been going since I think it's eighty seven, mm-hmm. something like that, and actually, considering they. That was that uh, 30, 40, 35, 40 years, 40 years, isn't it? Because I'm 50. Anyway, that's not that long, really, on the grand scheme of things. And they are a, a, a really big company now with lots of um, imprints uh, in all sorts of areas. So fiction and nonfiction. And they continue to do well. And they always report really good results in the blue. In and the they're booksella. still regarded as an independent company. They are an independent company, yes. Um <laughs> They're just a very successful independent company. Okay. Anyway, so, and this caught my eye and I thought, oh, here we go, Bloomsbury again, doing very well. But it's interesting because they're attributing it to their fantasy list, their fiction fantasy. So they publish, um, I don't know if you've heard of American author Sarah J. Mass. No. No? Oh, I, I thought she was quite well known. Um, she might well be, but that's not that's <laughs> not my area of interest. No, I know that, but you see her covers everywhere. Anyway, yeah. so it's partly because they publish her, but also, of course, Harry Potter fits into that um, genre of still. Of course, and, yeah, you know, and that's, that's a Bloomsbury. A, yeah, so, and they, they've had a few more um, titles uh, more recently in this. Um, they've obviously spotted that fantasy is a big area. Yeah. I mean, we know it's a massive area in um, independent publishing world, as in it is, yeah. independent authors. Yes. And so, yeah, very, very um, um, wise of Bloomsbury to tap into this so they're obviously doing well because of that so i just thought it was quite well, interesting. How, i mean how much is do they spell out how much fantasy has contributed towards that i mean what are the figures we, we haven't discussed uh, what they've done well that's a good question um well 70.7 million in the first half of the year it's profits profits that is okay and right. they've risen um 11 percent okay so, so right, that's, okay. That's a, that is actually quite a massive Given the current mm. state of the economy and, you know, all the ways... Yeah, no, that's impressive. That's yeah. impressive. Okay. Uh, do we have anything else um, on our agenda news-wise? Well, I just wanted to touch upon something we talked about last week. Um, so we spoke about um, the function on audiobooks to speed up narrators. Yeah, I, I gave an example of how I sound when I'm t- twice as fast as I would be normally. Yeah, yeah and we both said... Oh, that's shocking! How can, how can that be a thing? And why would you want to do that? Now, yeah. I've I've had some messages from people. This obviously um, sparked interest. And uh, one person who is a uh, she has her own podcast. It's actually Philippa, um, mm-hmm. so the Quick Book Podcast. And she said that she does speed up narrators, and um, it's partly because for, so there's two reasons. One, she says she has issues sort of focusing so it helps to focus if they're speaking faster right she doesn't uh, concentrate on them yeah yeah and i thought fair enough that's great you know i can i can see that because i'm listening to an audiobook in the car at the moment um it's actually a kate atkinson book and i i must admit i have drifted 
a little bit and I thought maybe I should speed it up to see if I can get back into the story. Mm-hmm. And she also said because she reviews books, she speeds them up, not massively, but just a little bit to get through the volume yeah. of books that she has to read or listen to in order to review. Um, and someone else said the same. They said, you know, if, if it's they're a bit, it's a bit dull and they will speed it up to get through it and there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I think, okay. But does that does that speak to the narrator not being good enough or the writing not being good enough? Well, I, I wonder. Well, Philippa, not in Philippa's case. No, no, no. I appreciate that. But, but, if, other... if, but if you're getting bored and you're speeding up because you're bored, that does suggest that two of those elements might be out of out of you know, not not quite right. Well, I think in the case of the Kate Atkinson book I'm listening to, because I absolutely love Kate Atkinson's work. I think it's just because it's a very, she writes very long books. She writes very, um, they're, they're very good, lots of characters. I think I just want to get through it because I only spend a certain amount of times in right. the car. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, 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 I think, you know, because I'm looking at it from the perspective of the narration and I was in the studio yesterday starting an, an, a new project and it was a, a style of book that I've never done before. So I started doing some middle grade work and you uh, regular listeners will remember our interviews with Kate Wiseman and Elaine Bousfield back in uh, just a few weeks ago. Yeah. And from that, um, I'm doing the gangster school trilogy for Kate Wiseman's, um, you know, she wrote and, and it's, uh, I did a couple of chapters yesterday, first attempt at doing it. And, and I love doing it, but one of the things you've, I, I was conscious of is that you were talking about middle grade listeners so we're talking about you know seven to twelve year olds and i'm trying to deliver it with enough energy and excitement but not going so fast that they don't pick up some of the more uh, challenging words which there are there are half a dozen that i thought oh that's quite an advanced word for that age group um but i you know and but at the same time what you're trying to do is create something so that they could they're not i think if you go too fast you drop people from the story because they're not able to let their minds build the picture that you're trying to, your, your, your performance is trying to create and the writing is trying to create. So there is this, this balance always. Yeah. And I think I've slowed down as a narrator. You have, I I think you have since you started narrating. Yeah, I'm sure I have. Your pacing is much better. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's very much part of the skill. And the interpretive art. Now, if you think about a great actor, how many of them go fast? I mean, the great cinema actors. I mean, if you look at, I'm always going to go back to Michael Caine, but there's a really interesting, if you ever look it up on YouTube, he did a, a masterclass uh, for the BBC many years back in the 80s, I think. And, um, it was where he was he was encouraging people to take it slower take it was advice he was given by john houston and uh, other directors was that stillness on screen and the way that you deliver your lines are much more powerful slower than they are faster but i think there are two different issues here one is are you listening for enjoyment in which case you wouldn't speed it up. Are you listening because you have to listen to this piece of information or this piece of fiction for your work or 
for whatever reason. You've got your time pressured. Yes, mm. you would speed it up. So I think because I think your reaction was as a sort of a creative, you know, from the perspective of being creative, you've set that pace deliberately for the story. Mm. And there was me suggesting that it could be speeded up and that, you know. Upset. Well, uh, to, to, to my, yeah, to my view, I'm doing it because I want to deliver a certain type of performance and deliver and impart an experience. Yes. And you can't do that sped up. Now, I mean, this is tangential and, and it's not, a reference, but what's something I noticed that YouTube have just updated all of their presentation on their um, app, and now you can speed up clips in a way that you couldn't before. So you can now watch stuff at twice speed, which is a new development. It only happened this week. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I think I feel that sense of that's an outrage. But no, I, I you know, and the way I feel about it is look. You know, if 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 it is about a question of just imparting information and then getting on to the next thing, fine, that's your choice. But an audiobook and indeed any creative experience of an audio or visual medium, you should really give yourself the the environment and the space to enjoy it for what it is, as opposed to. I mean, I appreciate that a lot of people listen to audiobooks while they're cooking or doing something else um, as background noise, but that's not how I as a creator in my studio should be thinking about it because if the minute I think it's just going to be background noise and wallpaper, the, 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 you know, then something in, in the, something of my motivation will disappear. But it, I don't, it's not necessarily background noise, is it? I, if I sat here on this sofa and played an audio book, my mind would wander very quickly. But if I'm driving the car or mowing the lawn and listening to an audio book, yeah, I get more of the audio book. Yeah, no, I I, I understand that. I mean, it, it's it's a it's an interesting debate, <laughs> and, and 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 it's been you know I'm sure it's the same been with radio drama and all sorts. Is you know uh, that it's very hard in modern life to actually find the space of time to to you know that's why the cinema is so magical if you go to the cinema because you have to push everything else. You're just focusing what's the experience, the sound and the, what's on the screen um, and, and and your popcorn. It, it's it's <laughs> not... Um, <laughs> it's you, know, it, you have created a window in which to experience this thing and it's never the same when you're at home in front of your telly. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because if I watch a film on TV, I am either reading a book, drifting off, sat with my laptop, yeah. looking at the ceiling. Well, I mean, the number of times a week... I have to say, oh, point to the screen and say, look, what's happening here? You know, the, um, and you're going, what? Because you're doing something else at the same time. I, I really struggle to focus on TV. But in the cinema, it's dark, so I can't. I no, can't, you can't get your phone so out big. either. It's no. so big. <laughs> well, you could talk. You sit there on your phone as well. I do, I do. I do. So, but anyway, we're not going to go... Okay, let's, debate, let's but... move on to our interview, shall we? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> going around in circles a little. Yeah, And uh, as we mentioned earlier, we are talking to Sanjeev Shetty. Now, Sanj and I have worked together for many, 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 many years. Many, many, many years. Uh, Sanj originally, uh, when I first met him, was working for BBC Sport Online and then moved into television as a producer and then a presenter for a period and uh, has left the BBC now and has moved into other spheres, continuing to write uh, fiction at the moment and uh, is also a speechwriter for... 
Sadiq Khan, the uh, controversial, shall we say, Mayor of London, who cops it in every single newspaper, it seems. Well, let's hope he doesn't write a book with uh, lifted sentences then. Well, no, I hope not. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, Sanj, you know, has been, um, you know, words are his thing. Uh, but as oh, he, a wordsmith, that's the word I yeah, used. Yeah, I, I, I thought one of the interesting points he made or makes in this interview is because I asked him the question, you know, has the process of working where we did and the amount of writing we did uh, on a day-to-day basis helped him. And he said, yeah, we used to write 4,000 words a day. And actually, I think about it now, and I think, yeah, we pretty much did, actually. Yeah. And um, so that really is uh, – that, that's made me sort of got my mind spinning about, you know, if I just put time at the keyboard, I could knock out 4,000 words, which is, you know, a prodigious number for a writer. But that's what we had to do. But as he points out also – one of the problems with modern journalism is that it's journalism, which is to say, you know, you're just reprocessing something that someone else has done and putting it out there. So that is an element also uh, of frustration because original journalism takes time, money and effort. And journalism. there's much m- journalism. Yeah, it's very I've never heard of that. I really, like that. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm you know, I, I, I would say that there was a lot of it. And so the the. The, the thing we used to have to try to do is put some original spin and, and quality on it as, you know, some sort of interpretation as opposed to just putting out the very basic stuff. But um, anyway, we'll, we'll get to the interview. Here is Sanjeev Shetty. Well, this is a, a first. It's a first. It's a Friends Reunited version of the Hobcast book, oh, though, that... as we're joined by Sanjeev Shetty, who, you know, you and I worked together for, I guess, 15 years directly together at least yeah, at least. yeah. must yeah. be i mean I, I i'm trying yeah. to track it back but you know it's I, I don't know whether your um life in the bbc sort of seems like a distant memory or not but mine's fast fading after what three four years out of it now it feels like i spent about a year after it um working through some form of ptsd Yes. Uh, which is basically always having to hit deadlines and deadlines. And it, it was two to three deadlines a day. And then I'm, I'm, I think I'm out of it now. Um, so it, it sort of feels like a distant memory or almost feels like something I did. Uh, I, I was talking about what I did at the BBC today with someone random. And it took me a long time to process all the things that I did. And probably after I left the co- the conversation, I thought, yeah, I've missed out that, and I've missed out this, and I've missed out that. But that's just life, isn't it? And that's life, I think, when you're in your 50s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. But I think the PTSD thing, I mean, I, I've certainly struggled with it, and I still get the deadline dreams. Um, you know, dating back to the time, I mean, I mean obviously, so the last 10 years, I wasn't necessarily that worried about them because I wasn't sort of putting things on air so much. But certainly the dreams of... Uh, not having my scripts when I was in local radio, going to read the news bulletin and nothing, you know, none of the audio working or none of the scripts being there or none of the kit working, that still haunts me now. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the, the, there are two types of dreams, that, recurring dreams that everyone has, aren't there? There's the naked one. Yeah. <laughs> fortunately, I've not had for a long, long time, which is quite befitting given my physical state now. But um, the other dream, the recurring dream I used to have was the autocue going down. And if it wasn't me reading the news, it was the presenter reading the news. 
and the crap I was going to get when they turned out, when they came off the air and saying, Sanjeev Shetty, you? And no, I didn't. I didn't, you know, I couldn't do a thing about it. And then, then you wake up and you go, oh, it's just a great big dream. I can go back to, you know, getting <laughs> on with the rest of my life. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, look, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky that I, I can say to everyone, uh, we were talking about this the other day, because so I've got two uh, fairly grown-up sons. Uh, I've got one who's 20, who's at university, and the other one's who, who's 18. But they've both now held down jobs, part-time jobs. And the conversation was between two of them and their mum and me. Um, everyone hates their job. And I turned around and said, I didn't. I loved my job. I loved every single second of my job. And even on the bad days, I still love my job. Um, and now I'm not doing that. I still love what I'm doing. So um, without wishing to sound too smug about it all, um, got to live the dream of being a sports journalist or in my own ma- mind, being Hugh Bakovani, but with Asian parents. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. We used to have l- l- lengthy conversations about Hugh McIlvany. Um, I actually don't know who that is. Well, <laughs> he was a doyen writer, um, for the Sunday Times uh, in his latter years anyway, but one of the great writers and one of the great Scottish voices as well. So, okay. uh, but we talked, we talked about the craft a lot, but we're here to talk about your books and that side of your life. And you were the, one of the first people I know who took the plunge many years ago with your first book, man's work. I remember it. I remember getting a copy of it and reading it and, I made you buy it. <laughs> yeah, well, you did, yeah. But I mean, fair enough. I mean, we're teammates, and and I, I was always there was an, there was a streak of jealousy in me that you'd you'd, you'd got as far as writing because I, you know, I had in my mind that I was going to be a writer at some point, and I'm still got that in my mind. <laughs> um, and I run a publishing house, and you haven't produced a book yet, so you know, Not I with do your it. name on it. No, that's true, but <laughs> plenty of others, but. What was that like when you took the plunge? Because, you know, you were working nights, you were doing, you know, the shifts that we used to do, which were epic. Finding the time to do that. How was that? So, I mean, it goes it, it goes back to, I think, the thing that defines quite a lot of us at our age, our stage of life, is it was the children that basically was the reason why I wrote Man's Work. And the reason why was that, um, so I think I wrote Man's Work in 2010, but it wasn't published until 2012. But in 2010, my boys were seven and five, and they were lousy sleepers, just the worst sleepers on this earth. And in my old house, we had a little tiny room. It was what we used to call the baby room. So it was, you know, it was the room where the, when the boys were really small, that's where they slept. It was then it was then vacant because they then slept with us, but they. Then they slept in their own room. So I wanted to be in a room where I could be on hand if anything happened. And that lasted for a you know months, weeks, whatever. And then I thought to myself, you know, I've got a laptop and I've always wanted to write the book. Always wanted to do it. Um and I talked over the plot with my wife, Laura. Um, and she said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's much smarter than me. She never she never had that like the work ethic that I think I've always had. I don't know where it comes from, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I had started it, you know, every now and then getting a free hour, which, again, if you've got small children, you don't get much in the way of free hours. The only free hours I could see for myself were those ones 
at night when everyone else was sleeping or in theory sleeping. And I thought, okay, I've got about maybe 5,000 words down on paper. How much do I need for a, for a book? I didn't really know. I mean, I discussed it at work with people. How long should the book be? Uh, and opinions were anything between 20,000 and 100,000. And I thought, well, I'll go with 50 then. Um, <laughs> yeah, just go somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, just go, yeah. And then there was literally two nights where it just came. Everything I wanted to write was was there. And fortunately, the boys didn't wake up on those two nights. <laughs> and I just went, you know, had that moment where everything just came to me. Uh, I had a story. And I think when you look back at your life and you realise, of course, the story comes from parts of books that you've read and the influences you've had. Um but it was there and I wasn't plagiarizing or anything like that. It was a completely original story, perhaps inspired by where I, where I lived, you know, I lived in Shepherd's Bush at the time. Yeah, I remember. Which, yeah. Well, and I love Shepherd's Bush. I, I would go back and live there tomorrow if I could afford it, but obviously I can't afford it anymore because, you know, London's gone. Um, <laughs> if, that, if you didn't hear that sound effect, it was, um, but um, it was done. And I gave it to my wife and she said, oh, I love it. And then she said the one thing that she didn't like. And I went, well, I'm not changing that. Um, <laughs> and then I thought, well, I didn't really know what to do with it. You know, it was there. It was, uh, I, I still had loads on at work as well. I was sort of straddling that position of being a producer, but also doing some presenting as well. So I was essentially doing seven days a week. Um, if I wasn't producing, I was presenting. And then finally, I think, I, I looked on Amazon and Amazon did a self-publish thing. So I, I paid the 150 quid or whatever it was to self-publish. But it was ready to go, but I didn't publish it until we moved to Manchester in 2012. And I think you all remember Roy Kelly, who himself is a is a writer of, of several books, who just said to me, just do it. Just publish it now. So literally I was at work, no ceremony. I didn't. I didn't have a, a a junkie or anything like that. I just hit send, and it was and it was out there. And I got <laughs> copies uh, in the post, uh, and then started to hawk them around the office. Um, Adrian, kindly, you bought me. You bought one of my books. What I know is that I was such a good salesman that I actually did sell over a hundred copies myself, just me. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people bought it around the world, but what I know is I, I, I did that, and then Amazon sent me a check. Uh, about a year later, the, the royalty check, which I knew it was never going to be any more than that because I, I was done. I'd sold all the copies I could do. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't... I, was I proud of it? I think I was proud enough to say I've done it. Not... You know, it's really funny because the people that I work with who read it loved it. The people who I'm really... You know, like my my, long, my lifelong friends, like the people who've been with me all my life, hated it. <laughs> So it's one of those ones where I never really, I can never really, imagine, I can never really work out whether I had done a good job or not. Um, but like Adrian, like you said, you wrote it and you you read it and you thought, well, this is actually all right. It obviously needed a professional touch. It needed people to look at it, to edit it, to proof it. Um, but it was out there, and then it sort of started me on my journey. And well, I mean, you can ask me uh, more questions, obviously. But at that point, I thought you know, that I'm not just. Uh, this is not just it for me. There'll be more. Yeah, and have there been more? Well, there have. Yeah, there have. Well, tell but, me but, more. But but I mean, you know, you, I mean, your most recent book is a sequel 
in a way, with the it's, same it's character. It's a sequel, yeah. yeah. It, it was, so yeah. You, you, we re- reunited with Sam Langford, who was the protagonist yeah. in your first book, and now you brought it back to a setting you're familiar with. So Shepherd's Bush was where you were um, yeah. and living and, uh, you know, where we worked yeah. around the corner in, in Television Centre. Yeah. Um, and yeah. now you're placing it with your knowledge of sport within the world of golf. Um, yeah. So how does Sam Langford get swept into that in, in, in your new book? Or newest book, I should say. So the thing is, right, so, so yeah, so I did three sports books, three sport non-fiction books. And when I finished the last one, I wasn't that satisfied with it. I was just like, thinking, I, I literally, I thought I just churned it out. That's how I felt. Um, and this is 2017. And um, around about that time, my youngest son, who was 11 or 12, everything I asked him, every time I asked him a question, literally all he would say was Jeff Walker. That's all he would do. And I'd be like, why? And he, he, he couldn't explain it. That was just two words he just got in his head. So I just looked at him and went, right, because of you, I'm going to write a book about someone called Jeff Walker. That was literally how it all came about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then initially I was going to do uh, like a satire. Um, it was a, the whole thing was going to be a satire. And I wasn't going to bring Sam Langford back. But then you sort of look around and you think, well, I'm not that kind of writer. So I, again, I did 20,000 words. But I didn't know where it was going to go at all. I had no idea. Um, and I brought Sam Langford back. And the, the idea then was just he was going to be the bodyguard to Jeff Walker. But again, I had nothing. I, mean, I didn't know where I was going until lockdown, the first lockdown. Um, and as you both remember, I mean, certainly working at BBC, but basically we got three or four months off. We weren't going into the office. And I get restless when that happens. I mean, so I had a, I had a Mac. I went upstairs, and I just brainstormed to think how I'm going to make this what I want it to be, or or something that people want to read. And it occurred to me as well that it was incredibly male what I'd been writing. Not because I thought I wanted to be incredibly male, but it just occurred to me that it was very male, and I thought. I need to balance this up and and bring the whole new world into it. Um, I don't know as, as a bloke. I don't know how the world, how much the world has changed for everyone. I know how it's changed for me, um, but I thought I need to have female influence in here. Um, so the idea was um, to have Sam Langford protecting this golfer, and then the other part of the story was to have something taking place in the Midlands. Uh, and I was lucky that I pretty good friends with a bloke who is a copper um, who's based in the West Midlands. And I talked to him on occasion about what I wanted to do with the book. And he gave me some pointers about the things I should do and should avoid. Um, so I came up with the idea of this female police inspector constable who's just starting out um, and she's learning about life, learning about herself and how her journeys intertwined with Sam Langford's. Um, and I was writing it. And at the same point, I was sharing everything I was doing with uh, a mate of mine who we went to journalism college together and she's always wanted to write a book. And we were sort of sharing scripts 
uh, so I was sending her like every 10,000 words she was sending me every 10,000 words that she'd done um, and she encouraged me and this, this is the honest truth she encouraged me that with the sex scenes to be more graphic so if anyone's, <laughs> really? ever, anyone's offended about them blame Alison Anderson who lives uh, in Sussex it was all her fault to make them graphic and more and more graphic but it was just a really, it was a really nice thing to do. You know, we, you know, with lockdown, you're quite. I mean, even though I was in here with the, with Laura and the two boys, there wasn't that much of the adult world for me to look out for, except for my mate Alison. So we would speak to each other probably once a week, uh, building up the idea of what we we're going to do with this book. And I was telling her what I was going to do with the book, and I don't want to say what I did with this book too much because there, if you've read it, if there is like a, a surprise ending. Um, but it's it was just one of those things that as it grew, I felt more and more comfortable bringing Sam Lanford back, and I felt more and more comfortable writing about um, a woman and her journey um, to, to the point where the third book in this um, series might be about her and not Sam Lanford. Right. Okay, well, yeah. that's often the way that people, you know, will discover a character... Yeah. In the context of, of one that's already established and, and go yeah. off in that direction. Yeah. 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 So, but, yeah, it was, and it was just, it, it was just, do you know what? It was what the one thing I thought when I finished writing it, I was, I was gutted that I finished writing it because I'd love writing it. I'd really, I'd really, you know, I thought I had the right length. It was 100,000 words, um, or give or take, you know, a thousand here or there. But I was so happy with the, the amount of time I spent on it and the way it ended up. And the way I'd planned it, um, the two characters, the two main, each other through their eyes, as opposed to the way I'd been writing it before. And it was just, that was so much fun to do it that way. Whether it whether it came across or that, I don't know, but I had loads and loads of fun. And and I remember thinking when it, when it finished, I just, I came downstairs and went, yeah, that's done, that is. And my oldest said to me, and what do you think? I said, I'm really happy with it. And they're both teenagers then and... Um, I think my eldest has read it and he's lo- he loved it, really, really loved. It. And when you when your eldest, who I think was eighteen or ninety, when I read it, when they say it's really good, I'm thinking, well, I think I might have done something right. Yeah, because they would tell you, wouldn't they? Being children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it's inspired like... by Rubens' Jeff Walker repetition, yeah. then, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Raffer yeah. and Rubens we're referring to, um, yeah. your boys, and uh, you know, because it's funny because. It reminds me of we were, you know, uh, in the office, dads with kids of the same age and, you know, the parallel lives that we led in terms of, yeah. you know, the the thing, the, the eras of, of bringing up kids and the things they're into at certain yeah. points in their life, um, <laughs> yeah. which were sort of a mirror image in many ways. Yeah. Um, but, you know, nonfiction's also match played. Match attacks. A, yeah, yeah, match attacks for, yeah, big time. <laughs> Goth, the, Satan's work. Anyway, Look, Laura, um, Laura actually said to me, Laura said to me the day, what was that thing they used to collect all the time? And we were there trying to scrabble down forever. And she said, It's not top trumps. I was like, It's not trumps. And she went, Oh, yeah, match attack. Yeah, match yeah. attacks. Yeah. 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 Same here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize, you know, because my son Ben, who is now 22, yeah. um, his addiction to match attacks. Is kind of uh, was a sort of foretaste of his um, his behaviour around FIFA, the game, and yeah. then arguably, and he probably won't thank me for saying it, 
Um, well, you know, the fact is that most of my communication with him is me putting bets on for him. I'll tell you the other thing. So, you know, there's, there is a theme <laughs> that emerges here. But anyway, going back to, I mean, it's interesting because that's, uh, dare I say, it, a neat segue into some of your other writing, which has been nonfiction around sport. Yeah. And um, I particularly remember your period when you were writing, and this is, again, in parallel with your job at the BBC, um, Messi Grafica. Is that right? Yeah. Which was um, that, a that celebration. Was, was, this is where yeah. we lose Rebecca in the conversation because she doesn't have a clue who he is. Uh, Lionel or Lionel Messi, whichever yeah. one. No, you go. A Formula One. No. Oh. Football love. <laughs> Sanj wrote... Uh, it sounds like a Formula One driver name. Anyway. Yeah, he's Argentine. Yeah. Anyway, look, I'll let Sanj explain <laughs> what, what the book was. but But it was... Essentially, uh, you provided the text to a book yeah. which celebrated in pictorial sort of form in terms of graphics and and, and yeah and... data yeah sort of data driven kind of thing. So it was yeah um, yeah and it was it's, quite quite uh, a new quite a new thing to do, wasn't it? It was quite innovative. So they had done they had done exactly the same idea on Roger Federer, uh, maybe a year or two years earlier. Um, uh, the publishing company was Aurum or White Lion or Quarter. They'd already, we'd already, I'd already worked on a boxing book for them. Um, it was a so with the messy book. It's a the the backstory of this is um, an agent woman of this. Um, off the back of doing the boxing book, um, they wanted to do another book with them, um, and this and I think they were they were looking to get into the football market. Football books sell, as I'm sure you know, football books sell ridiculous. I mean, they just go off the charts. Um, and they had pitched this idea at, um, I think, the German book fair, Frankfurt. whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah the Frankfurt Bookmesser. Yeah, and they pitched it and they'd got really, really good, um, a really good response. Um, and essentially, the book was going to be. Co-ed or franchise, you know, it, it was going to be published separately in seven or eight different countries, translated into different languages. Um, and I was very excited about it. And then my mum died, um, and I literally, I think maybe about ten days after she died, I literally put my put pen to the paper and say, "Yeah, I'll do it." Because I was just in such a sort of fog, I didn't, you know, I wasn't taking anything on board. Um, and then, similar to sort of quite similar similarities here with the Jeff Walker and the man's work kind of thing, which is, I knew I could, I didn't have the mental capacity or the the time capacity to do anything on it at all um, for the first six months after I signed it, because, you know, as when when one of your parents dies, um, there's so much paperwork that you have to go through. You know, I was executor of the world and all, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I remember thinking, I think I set aside August of that year, August 2016, um, to write the text. So in the meantime, I'd accumulate inter interviews. So I spoke to a few people in Spain, spoke to a few footballers to give me their thoughts on him. I, I don't know what you can say about Lionel Messi. Um, hopes because he's at worst the, one of the three best footballers that's ever lived um, and at best he's the best footballer that's ever lived um, we've had this debate <laughs> yeah 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 um, so 
I got all the information together and then pounded it all out uh, over you know, five, six weeks kind of thing. Um, and the thing is, and it's, I, I think fiction is is more satisfying to write because, you know, it's you, it's your personality, it's it's got all your ideas in it. But there's also something really, really satisfying about writing about someone who's brilliant, who's great. And then you get to use all the adjectives, all the nouns that you ever wanted to use in your life, and they put them all together. Um, someone on an Amazon review described their writing as quite mediocre. And I was thinking, well, just say you hated it. That, that's fine. <laughs> I'd rather have you. I'd rather have you say it was the movie, the writing was you hated it because I, I was really happy with the way. The, the chapters came out, you know, I was able to talk about the beauty of what he did um, and give it some sort of context in terms of his background, the life he'd led, how he'd gone from being this four foot 11 bloke who had some HGA, HGH um, to basically make him bigger and taller and how he'd become this giant of the, of the game. It, it was a wonderful thing to do. Um, and, it has, like I said, been translated all over the world. I've actually seen a Spanish radio interview when the, people are talking to each other and they've described me as um, Stato. <laughs> the British Stato. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I mean, I don't know if you remember back. I, I don't know if you remember. If you, I, know, I know you'll remember it. I was, um, the original Stato used to wear a dressing gown, didn't they? Yes, he did, yeah, sort of yeah, smoking yeah. jacket, dressing yeah. gown. Thing. You have to yeah. tell me who Sato is. Uh, Angus Lochran is the guy's name, and he was on, um, what was it called? Uh, Fantasy Football, couldn't it? Fantasy, Fantasy Football, yeah, with David yeah. Baddiel and Frank Skinner. And oh, he, when was that then? Oh, um, you know, in the 90s, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. came out, yeah. that's probably in yeah. Japan. You were actually, you were right. In Euro ninety six, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of years where I don't know anything that was on TV or no. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so stat, that's I, I where I think my um, my nephew um, through his mother got in touch and said, "Could you do me a signed copy, please?" And it uh, and you know I I never think about the thing about books is that the, 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 the once you've written a book, everyone wants you to sign it, don't they? If they buy it, yes. they want you to sign it. Um, but it was lovely to actually have done it for like a member of the family, for a member yeah. of the family to say, can you say, yeah, that, that meant something. So, yeah, so that was just, that, that was an amazing thing. But I would say that after doing three sports books and at the same time I was being, I was a sports journalist, sports producer, team producer, there's only so much more I think you can put into it before you think I need to do. So I need some sort of separation, you know, whether I do this full time or whether I don't do it at all. Um, so, I kind of feel that if I go back into sports writing, it will be something more like to do with boxing, um, which I think I think I heard the late Michael Parkinson's describe that cricket and bo- cricket and boxing uh, produce the best sports writing. Um, never written a cricket book, don't think I could because <laughs> I think when you love your cricket, you you, you are so um, into it. You know, you turn up for a for a game of cricket uh, with your your pad and you're making notes about the last game that you saw and just, you know, you're putting down who was out and how many they got on. Whereas I think with boxing, I know enough stories about how boxing used to be. So I think I could paint the story. Um, and again, I mean, the boxing book that I wrote, No Middle Ground, um, it, it's, it's um, like I said, it's unbelievable that 
uh, I finally started getting royalties on it um, six years after I wrote it. And they come in now twice a year. So it, the publisher said to me, or my book editor said to me when I wrote it, he said, if you write the book the way I want you to write it, people will remember, remember this book for, for ages. Whereas I think at the time, um, a colleague at Beeb, uh, a guy called Benders, who obviously you remember, um, Pogues, um, was writing a very similar book. And he pitched his idea to the editor. And the editor said, well, I don't, I'm not really, I'm not keen on that. So he apparently turned it down. And he was right because I'm not saying mine's better than Ben's or anything. I've never read Ben's. But whereas mine has kept selling, I think his basically stopped after a year. It was like one off the conveyor, one off the conveyor belt. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was your passion project, wasn't it? I mean, you, you, you loved your boxing and always yeah. have done. Yeah. How about uh, a fictional book set in the boxing world? Would you do that? Well, I don't know. I might do. I might do. I mean, it's funny because I think um, there's um, obviously again, hopes you want this, but I don't know, Rebecca, if you know a guy, if you've seen a guy uh, called Steve Bunce, um, yeah. who's always, you know, obviously, I don't know, hopes knows, but um, there's a guy called Steve Bunce who wrote a fictional boxing book. Which I think has been the least successful of all the books he's ever written. So I don't know. It's every time I every time I talk about doing another fiction book, um, I hear the words from someone say it's a very tough market to crank. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> as I'm sure the two of you know. Yeah. So, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, we're it's, still it's, cracking. It's, yeah. It's just where it's just where the ideas come from. So um, I'm hugely influenced, I think, by the books that I read growing up um so my favorite author when i was growing up was a guy called robert b parker um who uh, wrote the spencer books and i think probably a lot of my ideas probably come from all the books that he wrote um and without even realizing you know he just came out with so many different ideas um i can't remember whether he actually ever read wrote uh, a book about boxing um but i knew he loved his boxing it was always it was clear when you wrote when you read the anecdotes about this character's life about how much he loved old boxing. Um, so there's potential for me to write another boxing book. But what I would say is, I don't know that much about boxing now. I, I wouldn't know how to how to portray modern boxing in, in a in a book. I could do it if, if you asked me to write a book about boxing in the 70s or the 80s and the 90s. I think I'd be all right at it. But to try and do one in 2023 20, when Tyson Fury is about to fight someone who does ufc i'm not i'm not entirely certain. no it's completely changed the sport you could write historical fiction though yeah. about set in the boxing world in that at that time because people love historical fiction it's a you know yeah. it's a big yeah. genre yeah. yeah yeah but um but i mean yeah it's just it's one of those things where um i just don't, i don't know where it's gonna go but i i always have ideas and like i said i've got an idea for the one that i'm about to write um, I've sort of started it, um, and but it goes back to stuff that I knew about at school, or have since found out about stuff that happened at school. Mm. Um, and but this will be less, hopefully, by using the female um, investigator, and in it. it'll be less personal, I think. And yeah. I hope hope to put a little bit more distance between me and the character. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Mm. Yeah. What about your process then? Because when I'm writing, 
Yeah. Which doesn't happen very often, then. <laughs> when I'm writing, which happens very, very rarely, um, all too rarely, really, um, I'm always surprised how quickly it can I can get the words down. And I think that's partly because of the discipline that you and I had to develop as broadcast people, broadcast producers sure. writers yeah. journalists whatever you want yeah. to describe them as, as as we had to we yeah. were under deadlines Wordsmiths. yeah yeah that, you know, it's, is... it's, it's, it's a weird one because um yeah I, I think once you're used to i don't want to use the word churn but i'm going to say the word churn <laughs> when you're used to churning out copy prose whatever whether it's for someone um it's not, it's not hard, is it? And it, it's it's weird for me because um, I wasn't very good at English at school. In fact, I was terrible at English at school. Um, but I got better and better and better at it. So what I would say, um, I'll give you an example of, for instance, with the boxing book that I wrote, which is um, back in was that? I started that in twenty twelve. Um, I was given a year. Uh, to write it, uh, which I'm very fortunate to get a year because I don't think anyone gets a year anymore. I think you get uh, at best six months, but more like six weeks, isn't it? Um, I had drawn up, I was told it was 100,000 words, it had to be 100,000 words. I was told it was 100,000 words. I knew what the subject was, so it was going to be about Nigel Benn, Chrissy Bank, Michael Watson. Um, so I drew up a list of potential chapters um then uh without even speaking to anyone um but I, I researched it enough to know that i needed to write this chapter that chapter this chapter so essentially it was going to be one chapter about each boxer in terms of the background uh there was also going to be a chapter about uh for instance michael watson having to rehab so there's all these things then i put those chapters down and then i realized the people that i need to speak to um so i drew up a list of people i want to speak to uh and then went through the daunting process of actually trying to speak to them there was only one person I didn't speak to that I really wanted to speak to when I did the book, and that was Chris Eubank. That was the only that was the only miss, but it was I you know I I worked around it. Um, so that was that process in terms of fiction book um, process. Quite often it just hits me when I'm ready to do it when the when the brain's in the right position to just go commit to it full scale and just say right here's some words. I think I need to know how it's going to end. You know, remember, uh, was it when Harry met Sally? When um, Harry, when he told me he picks up, picks up a book, he writes, <laughs> he, he, write, he reads the beginning and the end. Um, yeah, so that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that way. So if he dies, you know <laughs> how it's going to end. I like to know how it's going to end. Um, but I think, whereas with man's work, I think I'd written the ending before I finished it. With who is Jeff Walker? I looked at it as a writing the ending to be the treat for me. So I kept it back. So I knew how it was going to end, but I wanted to write. I wanted to write everything leading up to it to make sure the ending worked. I have the power over the reader. I know what's going to happen. And they don't. That's the only <laughs> thing I've got is that I know exactly know what's going to happen, and I'm going to I'm going to tease you and tease you and tease you until I have to tell you what's going to happen. But it's going to keep that going, going and going and going. So it's it's all those things wrapped up to make sure that I, I think I get the right thing in the end. If you've got the discipline, if you if you've been if you've taught yourself to write, if you know you've got to write three four thousand words a day on scripts, um, then you realise it's quite things. I, I when I left the BBC, 
Uh, I was a speechwriter for um, the Mayor of London, for Sadiq Khan. And the people that I worked with were genuinely surprised that I was able to bash out as many scripts as I did, as quickly as I did. And they said, they described me as being really hard work. I said, it's not hard work, it's just discipline. Just what we've been taught. We taught ourselves to work like that. Um, whether it was any good or not, it's not the matter. But it was that was just how we were able to do it, that we could we could grasp concepts and just go with it. I think being having been a speechwriter has helped me understand better the way to move people uh, in terms of the phrases that you use can, can trigger things in your brain uh, to make you more alive to the, the things that the messages that you're trying to send. Um, and I hope to to put it into practice for the next book because Who is Jeff Walker was written before. Uh, I got that uh, chance of a lifetime job. How is that? I mean, that's that's a remarkable um, gig. Yeah, I was just saying. I mean, what's it like writing <laughs> speeches for Sadiq Khan? Yeah, it's not an easy one because Sadiq has a whole raft of media after. Yeah. Everything that he does is bad yeah. in the way, yeah. you know, the Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the rest, all of them having a go yeah. at him. Yeah. Um, it's a, again, again, and again, I go back, I, two of you are working in the publishing business and you deal with fairly fascinating people on, on a daily basis, I'm sure. Um, but after having done what I did at B and having worked with people I did, no one actually ever really phased me. Um, so, for instance, I was producing Dan Walker like 15 years ago, and now he's one of the 10 most visible people on TV, isn't he? Yeah. Um, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a different thing, I think, with, with Sadiq Khan. So, you know, I was told quite early on, when you write a script, remember, just think about every word. And it, when they say every word, I think that they even mean things like there's and ands. There's nothing that you can't, there's nothing that isn't um, worth thinking about. Um, he's got an, an interesting way of speaking. Um, from a point of view of the PR team and uh, his image and all that, um, they're very keen to make sure, or he's very keen, I can't work out whether it's him or the team, to make him seem as authentic South London as possible. So he speaks in a way so he would speak like um almost like a guttural lad would speak in in that part of the world. So uh me and you we we all might say ing, he will say in. So he's going, not going, he's going. Um and so it's all those sort of things. And so I think you try and make your scripts wherever possible, cater to that way of speaking, if possible. Um he also doesn't speak for very long. I mean, he doesn't like to do speeches for much longer than 15 minutes. Um, the absolute optimum length of speech for him is three minutes. Um, and again, Adrian, we used to talk about this, but, but both of us were worshipped at the Temple of Bar- Barack Obama, didn't we? We used to love what, reading his speeches because he's yeah. he is. I mean, I spoke to the some of the guys that work in his team. He is, Obama is the standard by which everyone holds politicians too in terms of the way he spoke. Um, so it's not easy you have to think about all the things the way he speaks look at the speeches he's done previously um, 
and then a lot of it again is repetition so he will do every year he will always do uh, a message about so for instance Eid or or Hanukkah or any religious fest- festival going and it's important to make sure that it conveys the message that the, the year before one would say but just be different um, if that makes any sense and equally when I'm not there now um, I'd be intrigued to know um, how Jewish messages, messages would come out this year given what we've had in the last what three or four weeks uh, from Israel um, so it's it it's just it's it's a really sort of satisfying job, especially for someone like me, who for twenty five years just had sport on the brain, mm-hmm. um, and it just just the unloading of my brain and focus on something different was just it's almost like I was writing another book. Mm. Mm, that's fascinating. I remember you going for a job some years ago when we were still in London um, to be a speechwriter. So to to pull you know to finally get that opportunity is fantastic. Well, look, I think, um, Sandra, we've reached that point, if you're ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh now, but it is time for Rebecca's random question. So last week I was looking for something in a pile of papers and I found an old school report. And this is what it said about me. Rebecca will never realise her full potential if she persists in her carefree attitude. And that's it. That's the end. So my question to you is, what did your teachers say about you and did you prove them right or wrong? It's a really good question, right? It's a really good question because I've got two answers, right? Two answers. So the first one I remember from my art teacher uh, when I was 11 and, you know, I was terrible at art. Dreadful. I mean, literally as bad as it gets. Um, and he wrote on my score report, mostly conscientious and hardworking, as long as he gets his own way. <laughs> <laughs> but but the other thing was, I actually, um, just about six or seven months ago, um, I noticed that um, my old English teacher was on LinkedIn. So I just sent him a, a friend request. And connected so i sent him a copy of who is jeff walker because he had taught me spencer books that was one part of the curriculum uh so my final year of a levels um and he read it and he just he sent me this incredibly long message on linkedin i mean it must have been the the whole of a screen <laughs> and he just ended by saying he just saying and you have done this beautifully and I just thought that's the best thing that your old school teacher could ever, ever say to you, isn't it? Yeah, um, that's he was always, yeah. He, he, was, he was always, I mean, I, I think I got a B in, in English. Um, but he he was just, he was the best teacher I ever had, ever, by mm. a distance. You know, I used to look forward to his lessons. I didn't look forward to anyone else's lessons because he just was so charismatic. He made Chaucer seem like the most interesting thing you'd ever, ever read. And reading Chaucer just straight off. It's not it's not easy, is it? Um, no. So he was a brilliant teacher. And I think he is, and well, he, I could tell, he actually said to me uh, in, in these messages, this is the first time, and I've been doing the teaching, he, he's, he's retired now, first time I've actually ever, ever had the chance to interact with an author. Oh, he fulfilled a, a dream uh, for him. He, I, yeah, I, I, I made his dreams come true. That's so wow. sweet. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think English is a subject 
that there are memorable teachers. I had a memorable English teacher too, Mr. Hooson. Mm-hmm. Again, who he loved books, he loved reading, and it was infectious. And he yeah. would say, you know, oh, you've, you've got to read this book. It's a brilliant book. And it wouldn't be on the curriculum or anything like that. It'd be just some random book. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I had an English teacher that we knew as Greaser, and uh, we remember him for all the wrong reasons. Oh, okay. So uh, not- all boys school, I'll leave it there. <laughs> a good <laughs> English teacher. But... How about you, though? Did anyone say, well, they say on your reports? Well, And did I mean, you prove them right or wrong? I think I, I think they were right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, Adrian has intelligence, but he just doesn't know how to apply it. And I think, oh, yeah, that, yeah, I, think yeah. I think that is absolutely true. I mean, you know, subsequently, some, since I last saw you, Sanj, you know, I've got a diagnosis for <laughs> very severe attention deficit disorder, and yeah. it explains everything. Oh well, listen, <laughs> Sanj, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you uh, and to have you on the podcast. Uh, Is there somewhere online that people can follow you and and find out more about what you're up to? So uh, I'm at at Sanj Writer. Uh, That's big S, big W. (laughs) Um, And that's for uh, Twitter or X as it's known. Um, And on Instagram, I'm which I don't really use very much. Mostly what I use for Instagram for is to post pictures of me and my sons. Um, not your dinner then. Uh, not my dinner. <laughs> I used to put pictures. I used to put pictures of what my son would cook. But um, but yeah, uh, and you know they, they can see what I'm doing on uh, Goodreads as well. Uh, uh, so I do update that page every now and then, uh, and as well my as well my Amazon page as well. Mm. So, um, but yeah, the next book is loosely loosely titled looking for catherine is what it would be called um, fantastic we'll look out for that then we'll do. all right brilliant. do you know i think sanjay 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 knows we're talking about him because he's just popped up on my phone he's liked my tweet oh isn't that sweet just now <laughs> well it was lovely to uh, you know because i i've made it very clear on this program over the 145 episodes that we've done that i have um, a bittersweet relationship with the BBC and indeed I have sort of cut myself off to a very large degree to everybody I work with because of the nature of the way that I left and I don't want to go into that again but it it was interesting to talk to Sanj because it sort of reopened some pathways in my mind and my uh, memories that um, uh, I sort of shut off a little bit. Yeah, no, I think it, in a way it was good for you to reconnect with him yes i think so and him too i'm sure yeah absolutely but it, it, it is difficult isn't it i mean you know it's such an intense pressure pressure cooker environment that is amplified by the you know the create how do i put it there isn't a, a sort of there is a, a sort of when when you're up against it there is either a, a spirit of togetherness or of complete dissolution and um and you know dissonance between people um and it is. It, it. I. I. I'd liken it to being in a kitchen. I was going to say, um, in a medical situation as well. Yeah. Well, I, any I, of those sort of very mm, uh, time pressured, the time pressured, results thing. pressured. And I thought it was very interesting that he mentioned that he had PTSD for a year, where you know he uh, he was still waking up and having dreams about uh, deadlines and things like that. And that is something that it takes a well. You never get used to it because. It's just gnawing away at you. 
you 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 are always you arrive on a shift and you know that at a certain point in that day you have to deliver something from nothing which is 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 a it's a terrific challenge and if things are pulling your way you've got lots of stories and everyone's in in a good you know frame of mind and uh creative space it's great but when it's not like that and when you're pulling teeth the whole day it is and you know guests aren't coming back to you um plans go awry stuff fails it's so difficult so that that is i think the kitchen analogy is, is, well, a, is a worthwhile one. it sounds like any episode of boiling point doesn't it yeah exactly exactly or indeed any of those kitchen documentaries that you see, you know, <laughs> Ramsay shouting at people. That's, you know, I was a bit more Ramsay than I, <laughs> than I was Marcus Waring. Are. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. Oh, be more Marcus Waring. Yeah. He's got such a lovely voice. He does. And twinkly eyes. Oh, and I bet his cooking is amazing. Oh, shush. <laughs> Mine's not bad sometimes. Yeah, uh, you have made, so we should tell everybody. You've uh, invented. No, we shouldn't. Yes, we should. We've invented a new pudding. No, we haven't invented a new pudding. What well, kind of? Is it... No, we haven't invented it. It's, I mean, it's an established thing. No, but... it's not... I've never seen it anywhere. Okay. Okay, well, anyway. Yes, it... um, trust me, the audience will What's it called to... then? Well, I call it toffee banana. Um, and so, I mean, you know, banoffee and all that sort of thing. I just basically caramelized some sugar, put some fresh banana in it. And, uh, and then served it with some vanilla ice cream. I mean, it's not, not groundbreaking. No, it's not groundbreaking, but it's very yummy. Okay. It's not teeth-breaking either. So. No, it wasn't teeth-breaking, no. It was a soft caramel. But uh, anyway, so, hey, <laughs> that's just something. You know, we saw it on MasterChef, and I thought, oh, I'll give that a go. Um, usual inspiration. Yes, and it was very good. And I, I think you should have a name that's not been used before. Mm. Well, we'll think about that. Hope's Nanas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Hobes Nanas, okay, fine. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to sit in a menu anywhere. Imagine doing that for the critics on MasterChef. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we digress. So who's our guest next week? Um, so our guest next week is from across the pond and a very prolific and successful writer called Cathy... Giorgio. Yes, thank you. I remembered her name. I just couldn't work out how to say it. (laughs) Kathy Giorgio, who is, uh, yeah, uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the sort of established literary talents in America. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. So, and actually, uh, her agent approached us for an interview. So, you know, it's one of those, oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, well, that's (laughs) actually happening a little bit more, isn't it? And that's very flattering. Um, We love it. We love it when that happens. I'm just watching. there's There's a lovely robin redbreast on the fence as I look through the window. And and um, my grandmother used to have a fantastic relationship with a particular robin that used to visit her back door, and um, when she was living in Cambridge, and you know she would talk to it daily, and it would pop up, and it would come up pretty much land on the hand almost. They became it. such great it's friends. There now, yeah, um, it's a, it's a beautiful Sunday morning as we we're actually going to go for a walk later. Yeah, aren't we? which is a rarity nowadays. We barely leave the, the barn, but here we go. We're going to go and do. See the outside world. So, Katie, Kathy Giorgio, I should say, is next week's guest, yes. uh, which is fantastic. So, we look forward to that. And indeed, um, we got any other things that we want to talk about? We've got half term. Half term. So, we're going to see Lang Lang, Lang yeah. Lang tomorrow. We're going to go and see Lang Lang tomorrow in the Bridgewater is, Hall is in, um, in Manchester, which is a bit of a departure because, we, well, 
I mean, taking the kids is an educational thing. He's going to play the Goldberg Variations from Bach, which is a very, very challenging piece of piano um, music. Essentially, you know, it's open to interpretation as to how you play it. And uh, it's sort of one of the great landmarks of piano music, apparently. Well, they, the, the boys have actually gone to a concert today as well. So they're doing two in a row. They've gone to see the um, ukulele, ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain, which I love as well. I should okay. take you there sometime. It's slightly different, isn't it? Yeah. So that's uh, it's half term. So we'll have to balance um, keeping them entertained. Well, they feeding don't need them much entertainment. No, they don't. And uh, <laughs> feeding them loads. And uh, getting the work done. And mm. uh, as I say, I've started gangster school, so I'm going to carry on with that, as well as working on various other uh, audio projects at the moment, which, um, you know, various degrees of challenge involved in those. Um, and you've got, uh, as usual, an absolute slew of work. Um, actually, not too bad at the moment. I'm sort of between projects. So um, I've got, I've, I'm talking with somebody about possibly uh, editing a, a PhD thesis. So if that comes, yes, I'll be again but yeah um haven't heard anything that's that's the thing about freelance work isn't it is you have this sort of a number of maybe projects yeah and so i've got two maybe projects um mm. one for reed c and this ch phd thesis and it could completely change the dynamic of the week <laughs> yeah so oh and i ought to give an update on my father's health because we talked about the last couple of weeks so uh he's still doing pretty well he's recovering from his major heart operation it was a huge operation and uh, he's gone into a care home where my mother lives. So for the couple of weeks of respite care. And um, so that's, you know, terrific. He's out of hospital. He's uh, on the mend. And uh, so it gives me now just that little bit of space to get on with things that I perhaps had pushed aside for a bit. Yes. Um, so, yeah, um, long may that be the case. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us on the Hopcast Book Show. We really appreciate your company every week. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. The more the merrier. And, of course, don't forget to check out our website, www.hobeck.net, for Hobeck books, authors, our audiobooks, and all the news there. Also, archpub.net for any uh, other projects that you might have in mind. We can help you with uh, getting your book to the world. And indeed, adrianhobartnarration.com. And we should just mention the Henshaw Press competition because we're announcing the winners on uh, whenever the 31st is. What day is that? Tuesday? Yes, it is. Yeah, so on Tuesday we'll be announcing the first, second, third prize of the September competition. So good luck to um, all the shortlisted authors. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's fantastic. So that's the Henshaw Prize. So uh, it just remains for us to say farewell and join us again next week so my name's been adrian hobart or still is well hope bananas um <laughs> my name is rebecca collins and we'd like to wish you uh, all of you a wonderful and creative week bye-bye you've been listening to the hobcast from hobeck books with adrian hobart and rebecca collins you can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net you can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.